Thank you for listening to the Well Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Stanley. And today, we are going to talk about one of the most famous passages in modern literature. But before we do so, I want to tell you how you can support the podcast. If you're listening to this, then you will like it. And when you like it, you will express how much you like it to the world. And you can do that through the internet. It's a wonderful thing because iTunes has this beautiful little area where you can leave a review and that really helps the podcast or on Facebook. You can recommend us on Facebook or just like our page or subscribe on YouTube or go to our website, wellwaterchristian.com. There are so many ways you can help the podcast and it's good for everybody. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's good for your friends. It's just, it's a happy thing. Uh, So if you or your friends or your family are around this holiday season and you're enjoying what you're listening to on the podcast you can tell them about it and you can tell them to support the podcast because we need you just as much as you enjoy the podcast that doesn't make any sense you know what i'm gonna cut my losses and just go ahead and start talking about what i'm supposed to be talking about so today we're going to talk about um the grand inquisitor which is a chapter within uh dostoevsky's the brothers kremzov and it's a very, very interesting chapter. And, and it's so deep and complicated and, and profound that I almost just, I didn't talk about it entirely because I was afraid that I was going to screw it up. And then I realized, you know what? That's what I thought about the Tolstoy series. And I probably did screw it up. And I'll look back years later and go, wow, I really screwed that up. But right now is not the future. And even though I will look back one day and, and go, wow, you really screwed the Grand Inquisitor episode up, I don't care because it's so good that I have to talk about it. And I'm going to, I honestly, I, I screw up everything that I talk about, but it doesn't matter because I really enjoy it. And so later, I think I'll look back and, and say that I could have done better. But you know what? I, I'm doing the best that I can with what I got. And I'm really excited for what I have to you or for, for, for what I have for you today. So the context of this chapter, before I just jump right in. So there's a conversation between two brothers, Ivan Karamazov and Alyosha Karamazov. And Ivan is an atheist, to say the least. He has very strong convictions uh, about his atheism, and, and he knows exactly why he's an atheist. And, and he's, he's a very intelligent guy. And Alyosha is a very pious man. He studies at the monastery. He isn't technically a monk, but he's basically a monk. And these two brothers are both pretty smart people, and they have become close because they are both willing to talk about deeper things and, and these sorts of things. And uh, even though they weren't very close for the rest of their the rest of their lives, but now they're finding themselves um, engaged in kind of a heated discussion. Um, so here they are finally deciding, you know what, let's just meet out. Let's meet up for coffee or, or whatever they're doing. I think it's coffee. Maybe they eat soup. doesn't really matter. The point is, is that then they, they end up talking about these things where Alyosha says, okay, I want you to tell me why you're an atheist like what what are actually the reasons and they and so uh ivan says all right well you really want to know well here it is and and he goes on this incredible case against the existence of god uh, because of the problem of evil and it's the best attack uh based on the problem of evil that i've ever read i mean ivan really brings the house down Uh, He cites how much evil there is in the world and the suffering of just children. He consistently says, I'm not even talking about the suffering of human beings, right? Human beings are, they they get what they deserve. And, you know, human beings, there are, there is reason to not feel bad when a human being suffers, but a child, I mean, a child is a human being, but when a child suffers, that is really where you have to ask, 
where is God? If he exists, he should be here right now. And he's not. And so therefore that, that means either he's evil or he doesn't exist. And either way, I'm not going to worship him. And so he doesn't straw man any of the arguments uh, that a Christian is going to respond with this uh, with. Alyosha, you know, he's, he's kind of got his canned responses, but, but uh, Ivan's able to just absolutely brutally cut those down. He's heard the arguments. He's read the books. He's been brewing on this stuff uh, for decades. Or brooding? He's been brooding on this stuff for decades. And he knows what the religious folks say in response. You know, they say things like, well, we, we say things like, well, God will make it all right in the end. And well, if there wasn't evil, we wouldn't know what good really is. And so there's got to be a greater good that God has in mind or, or uh, God has given each one of us free will that he will not violate. And so you cannot hold God responsible when someone commits evil. That's definitely the worst one, but you know, we say all kinds of things. Anyway, so Ivan knows all of these arguments like the back of his hand, and he smashes them to pieces by just just bringing up anecdote after anecdote and story after story of of horrible things that have happened to children. He says he he routinely says for the, there's actually a quote where he says for the thousandth time I will only talk about children, and and even though I know that I'm neglecting 99 percent of the suffering in the world. This 1% should be enough to demonstrate that there is no possible greater good that could come from this and that God is not uh, off the hook just because someone else is committing the murder or doing this heinous, horrible act. Uh, And there's no way that God could make it right in the end because evil in and of itself is something that should not happen on God's watch. But anyway, we'll get into those uh, next week or perhaps the week after that. But we're definitely going to dive into... Um, Ivan's arguments. But for now, I just want to set up the context of the conversation because uh, Ivan has just got finished with this huge tirade and Alyosha has no idea what to say. His All of his counter-objections have come completely flat. He is intellectually bested by his superior brother. And the discussion uh, kind of concludes when Alyosha realizes that he really doesn't have anything left to say and that even if he did try to argue for God's existence it's not just that Ivan doesn't believe in God it's that it's that he hates God you know it's it's rebellion first it's disbelief second and Ivan fully admits this he says you know as a matter of honor he is bound to rebel against God's universe he says I cannot accept this world I cannot accept the suffering of children and the massacres and the genocides and the rape and the disease and and all that goes on on the earth. I cannot accept that a good God would create it. And so if God exists, then he, and he created me without my consent, I hereby return the ticket. And Alyosha just, he has no idea what to say to this. How do you respond to someone who not only disagrees with you, but hates your ideas, hates them? I mean, how do you respond to someone who says, God doesn't exist and I hate him? Well, Again, we'll respond to Ivan Karamazov in a few weeks. Uh, I, I think it's next week, but I think I'm talking about Jordan Peterson next week. But anyway, um, let me tell you how how uh, Alyosha responds. Okay, finally, Alyosha in this conversation, you know, pulls a rabbit out of a hat and says, "Okay, here's my ace in the hole. Here's my silver bullet." He says, well, "What about Christ? You can't complain about the evil in God's world and not talk about Jesus. I mean, come on, he bore." the wrath of God because of the evil in the world. Not to mention he experienced the consequences of evil firsthand. I mean, Jesus suffered greatly on earth. He experienced pain and the burden of temptation more than anyone. 
And Ivan, at this point, has a big old grin, and he says, well, I'm surprised you haven't brought him up sooner. Normally, you Christians trot Jesus out the second a conversation gets uncomfortable. <laughs> him and his precious blood. Well, says Ivan, if you've got another 10 minutes, I'll tell you about a little poem that I wrote. And Alyosha blinks a few times. You, know, you, you wrote a poem? Well, not really a poem. Plus, I haven't actually written it down. But it's been swirling in my head for a long time, and I have it memorized now. And so Ivan tells his brother this poem. And it's really more like a short story or perhaps even a play. I'd like to call it a play, actually. Um, and so I'll summarize the story, the play, uh, The Grand Inquisitor, and I'll tell you uh, what happens and what each character is saying and when. There's actually only one character that ever speaks. And, uh, and then we'll talk about some of the implications and, and some of its impact. Um, however, I, I do want to preface this by saying that there have been hundreds of books written on just this one chapter, The Grand Inquisitor, and I haven't read a single one of them. And it is absolutely criminal that I'm going to talk about The Grand Inquisitor without doing more research, without knowing what I'm talking about. Uh, but it would be even more criminal to blow through the Brothers Kramazov without even mentioning it, with, with just saying, yeah, sorry, can't, can't get to it. You know, I mean, we read this great literature for chapters like this. So even though... Uh, I'm not an expert, and I haven't done the research that I would like to do if I could do Elder well Christian full-time. I can't supply you with quotes and brilliant perspectives and, and insight that I might be able to in a different lifetime. <laughs> um, but it would be even worse to not say anything at all and just say, yeah, sorry, we'll, you know, we'll save the best for you if you ever decide to read it. It's like, no, you listen to this so that you don't have to read it. <laughs> because admittedly, Brothers Kramazov was a little slow. Uh, but the good parts were absolutely incredible. So anyway... Um, Ivan gives a literary preface before getting into it, and he says that in 16th century literature, it was very common to bring heavenly ideas down to earth. He references Dante and Victor Hugo's uh, Notre Dame de Paris and uh, a few other plays and things where actors actually take on the role of angels and saints and Christ himself, even God the Father. Um, and so he says, you know, my poem is a little strange, basically, but... Um, it's not strange for everyone and for all times and people and places. There's a genre here, so and, and, I, uh, and Alyosha says, okay, okay, I get it. Just go ahead and tell your poem. And so he says, okay, so this takes place in 16th century Spain when the Inquisition was in full swing. So imagine Spain in the 16th century with the Inquisition. The Catholic Church is burning people at the stake every day for the glory of God, according to the Church. And the opening scene is the Cardinal Grand Inquisitor, who has just burned a hundred heretics who said that they didn't believe in miracles, I think it was. And so it's, it's been a pretty good day, according to the church, as far as the Cardinal Grand Inquisitor is concerned. And just then, Jesus Christ appears, not in his full glory, as is prophesied uh, for his second coming, but only briefly, still in his human form, as if just visiting, just in the form that he was in before he was crucified, in his human flesh. And even though he appeared inconspicuously and quietly among the crowd in the town square, everybody seemed to recognize him immediately. And pretty soon, the knights and the peasants and the courts and the cardinals are all stirring because they see a man who appears clearly to be Jesus Christ. And as he passes by them all with a quiet smile of infinite compassion, people are swarming. Uh, swarming him and following him 
because of this strange invisible force that he seems to have, just his charisma that kind of exudes from him. And he begins blessing people and touching people and healing people. And eventually people are stumbling over each other to try to meet Jesus and to touch him. And, and there are some who doubt, but uh, then the miracle miracles start rolling out where Jesus, you know, uh, there happens to be a funeral going on somewhere else. And Jesus raises the girl from the dead and the blind can suddenly see and the lame can walk. And eventually everyone is absolutely convinced that, that this is the second coming of Christ or at least some strange appearing of, of him. And watching from afar is the old, coarse, monastic cassock, the old grand inquisitor, tall, bald, very old. Uh, I, think, I think he's 90, uh, the poem says. He's skinny and he's frail in his majestic priestly robes. And once Jesus comes close enough, the grand inquisitor orders the holy guards to have Jesus arrested. Now, it's important to note that as soon as the Grand Inquisitor gives this order, the people immediately step away from Jesus. As soon as the Grand Inquisitor says, arrest that man, everyone's like, whoa, you know, and they kind of back off. And Christ, like the meek and humble self that he is, simply smiles and allows himself to be taken into custody. And so Jesus is taken by the Holy Guard into the dungeon of the Inquisition, basically. And late that night, the Grand Inquisitor approaches Jesus. And so the whole story, the entire conversation, the whole chapter is this conversation between the, the Cardinal Grand Inquisitor and Jesus. And it's curious because actually Jesus never says anything the entire time, and, and, and we'll get into that. Uh, so Jesus is in this dungeon, and the Grand Inquisitor kind of represents the Catholic Church and organized religion and uh, hierarchical authority and government. Uh, and and that, that kind of a thing. That's that's who this character is going to represent. And then Jesus, of course, represents God, Jesus. So here's what happens. The Grand Inquisitor approaches his prisoner, and he asks, Is it you? Is it really you? No, wait. Don't answer that. It doesn't matter. I know what you would say, and you have no right to add anything to what you have already said in your word. It is the church who speaks for you. It is I who speak for you, and you have no right to take that responsibility away from me. But why have you come? Why are you here? To interfere with our work? Well, I don't know if it's really you or some imposter, but either way, I'm going to have you burned at the stake tomorrow as the greatest heretic to ever live, and the same people who kissed your feet and worshipped you today will rush to heap coals around your stake when I give the word. But you probably know that, don't you? You can foresee it, can't you? And Jesus is quiet. He doesn't respond. So the Inquisitor continues. Have you the right to proclaim one of your mysteries from heaven? No, because everything you proclaim now will enroach upon the freedom of the people. They will have to believe it because they see it for themselves. Now, at this point, Alyosha interrupts Ivan's telling of the story and asks, wait, 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 what? I'm, I'm confused. So Ivan explains that the Grand Inquisitor is saying that only now has the church been able to overcome people's freedom in order to make them happy. And the Grand Inquisitor actually now sees Jesus as an obstacle to that mission. And when man is a rebel, he cannot be happy, says Ivan and the Grand Inquisitor. And so people willingly give up their freedom in order to give up the burden of choosing what to believe or how to behave. And so that's going to be a theme that runs uh, throughout the story, and, and you'll see. 
So Alyosha interrupts again, and he says, well, okay, I'm, I'm very confused. How does human happiness require giving up freedom? And Ivan says, well, yes, the, the Grand Inquisitor is saying that human beings cannot be happy unless they give up their freedom, their rebellion. And so Ivan goes on to say that the main thing that the old man wants to speak about is the dread and intelligent spirit. Quote, the spirit of self-destruction and non-being, end quote. And here I think Ivan means the spirit of nihilism, of emptiness and purposelessness, of depression and anxiety and meaninglessness. The Grand Inquisitor says that this spirit, the spirit of self-destruction and the spirit of non-being, appeared to Christ in the wilderness, and it appears to all of us, and we would sooner take on tyranny than have to deal with that spirit. And when Christ dealt with that spirit, he did the exact opposite thing that the church did. And therefore, the Grand Inquisitor says that Christ is actually wrong, and, and he's so wrong that that he will burn at the stake for it. And in order to prove that he's wrong, the Grand Inquisitor will burn Jesus at the stake and the people will burn him at the stake because they prefer the Grand Inquisitor to Christ. So he says, do you remember? Do you remember the spirit who tempted you three times? Do you think that all the combined wisdom of the earth could ever think up anything faintly resembling in force and depth as those three questions that were actually presented to you then by the powerful and intelligent spirit in the wilderness? By these questions alone, simply by the miracle of their appearance, one can see that one is dealing with a mind not human and transient, but eternal and absolute. For in these three questions, all of subsequent human history is as if brought together into a single whole and foretold. Three images are revealed that will take in all the insoluble historical contradictions of human nature over all the earth. The Inquisitor then goes on to say that Jesus made the terrible, horrible mistake of refusing to enslave man. Instead, he did a monstrous thing, which is to make man even more free. The Inquisitor asks, If you would have turned stone to bread, the whole world would have followed you. Man needs bread and will enslave themselves for bread. And what do you do? You refuse to turn stone to bread. It's interesting. I, I want to pause here and say that there's a famous anecdote regarding uh, Joseph Stalin. And it's probably a legend. I'm not trying to say that it's true. But the story goes um, like this. Some of Stalin's henchmen asked him how to control uh, their parts of the state, of the province, and that they're in charge of. And so Stalin looks at them sternly, and then he bends over and he picks up a chicken, and he begins defeathering this chicken aggressively. And the chicken, of course, is screeching and writhing in pain, trying to escape. And then he lets the chicken go. It's all half bald and ugly. And while the wounds are still fresh, Stalin leans over with some chicken feed and uh, gets the chicken to follow his hand around in a circle. And the point is this. You can hurt someone all you want, and they will follow you as long as they believe that you are the only way they will get their next meal. If they are convinced that they depend on you for their survival, it doesn't matter how harsh you are to them or how often you beat them, or how recently that beating was. 
So anyway, the Grand Inquisitor looks at Christ and says, but you, you didn't offer them bread. You offered heavenly bread. How can you ask virtue of a people when they are starving? People will run to tyrants as long as they believe that they will get their next meal. But you demand that a man freely choose hunger. Think of the millions of people who love you but are too weak to deny their flesh and therefore are not worthy of you. They are as numerous as the sands of the sea. You set yourself up so that only the strong can follow you, while us, we feed people earthly food and they bow down for it. Oh, how you should have created bread for man. He would bow down to you forever and all mankind would join in universal worship. But instead, you chose to enhance their freedom. You wanted only those disciples who are willing to sacrifice for you. But the Inquisitor concedes. He says, man has nothing more that he wants other than to give his freedom to someone, to pawn off his conscience and appease it. He will even throw down his bread if he is seduced by a beautiful message. The mystery of man's being is not only in living, but also in what one lives for. Man will sooner destroy himself than remain on the earth if he does not have a firm idea what he is living for, even with all the bread around him. But instead of giving him a concrete miracle, you chose the unusual, the enigmatic, the indefinite, so as not to take man's freedom. Instead of throwing yourself off the top of the temple and being saved at the last minute by the angels of God for all to see and undeniably know that you are God's son, instead, you told man that he must believe you based on your image, based on your goodness, based on your likeness. Why, oh why, wouldn't you give a bold and powerful miracle so that all men could surrender their freedom and bow down to you forever? Quote, I swear, man is created weaker and baser than you thought him. How, how can he ever accomplish the same things as you? Respecting him so much, you behaved as if you had ceased to be compassionate, because you demanded too much of him. And who did this? You did. The one who supposedly loves the people more than he loves himself. Respecting him less, you would have demanded less of him, and that would be closer to love, for his burden would be lighter. He is weak and mean. What matter that he now, what matter that he now rebels everywhere against our power and takes pride in this rebellion? The pride of a child and a schoolboy. And so, turmoil, confusion, and unhappiness, these are the present lot of mankind after you suffered so much for their freedom. And so what the Grand Inquisitor is saying is, you gave mankind too much freedom. Look, they are arrogant. But can you blame them? They have the knowledge of a schoolboy. And so they're in turmoil and confusion and unhappiness. That is the present lot of mankind because you suffered so much so that they would be free instead of so that they would believe. And you can be proud of your truest and most pure disciples, sure. They endured decades of hunger and nakedness and eating locusts and roots. 
all so that you can have pride in those children of freedom. But what about the rest of feeble mankind that could not endure what the mighty endured? Is it their fault that they have a weak soul and cannot bear such terrible gifts as free will? And if you say that you only came for the chosen ones, for the elect, then there is a mystery here that we cannot understand, because then it was not a free choice. It has not love that matters, but blind obedience. And that is what we have done. We have corrected your deed and based everything on miracle, mystery, and authority. And you tell me which is more loving, to give man the freedom to starve himself in order to suffer for your name's sake, or to take his freedom and replace it with authority and mystery and miracle, because then at least he can be happy. Who has loved the sheep more? Have we not loved them more by recognizing their impotence? And of course, when he says we, he means the church. Himself, the Grand Inquisitor, the man who is burning heretics so that everyone knows right and wrong, and they just kind of stay in their lane and do the right thing and submit. Quote, we, the church, have corrected your mistake. We offer mankind happiness. They can marvel at miracles and gawk at the Bible's mysteries and submit to our authority and then go home and enjoy their lives, while you, you demand everything. How could you give up Caesar's throne? How could you be so foolish, so hard-hearted? We have loved the people, and we have conquered Caesar's throne. The people bow down to us, even sin when we give them permission. We have become their loving saviors that they have hungered for. And had you accepted Caesar's purple, they would have followed you. But instead, there was centuries of lawlessness and free reason and science and anthropology. And now they are building the Tower of Babel against you and against me with their freedom, which you were so careful to provide. And here it's important to make a note that Dostoevsky frequently called socialism and communism the Tower of Babel. He clearly saw the communist project as one which sought to liberate itself from the Christian idea of sin in order to build a tower to heaven and bring heaven on earth through community and brotherhood and, and uh, camaraderie is where that word comes from. So uh, Dostoevsky clearly saw socialism as an illegitimate child of Catholicism. And remember, he's Greek Orthodox. So anyway, the... So the Grand Inquisitor says that mankind will gladly submit their freedom to the church or to the state as long as it means they can stave off the nihilism and the free reason and the endless questions that science uh, asks, none of which provide any answers. What answers does reason get you? And of what use is the knowledge of science except perhaps to prolong our short and painful lives? Oh, we will reward them for their obedience, says the Grand Inquisitor. We will arrange their lives like children's games. We will give them songs and dancing and cathedrals to play games in, sports. And they will be overjoyed that they can have a clean conscience because they obey the rules that we set out for them, which are far less burdensome than your rules. Finally, the Grand Inquisitor says, Oh yes, I will lead the people like sheep 
to their deaths, but they will happily live their busy lives in obedience to me because I have corrected your deed. I have tasted the honey of the wilderness and the locusts. I have followed your allure, and I have counted myself elect. But now I have returned to civilization, and out of love for the people, cannot teach them your ways. They are too weak. They deserve the embrace of miracles, of mystery, and of, of, of authority. And they deserve to have their freedom taken away. That freedom that torments them so much because they do not have the strength to follow you and they know it. And so I shall continue to burn heretics and I shall continue to give happiness to the humble. And tomorrow I will burn you and my obedient flock will keep coals around your stake at my gesture and they will roar and cheer as you burn. And at this point, Alyosha is completely confused, and he interrupts a final time and says, Whoa now, you don't really think the Grand Inquisitor represents the Catholic Church, do you? To which Ivan responds, Well, not every Catholic, obviously, but there are cardinals and such who do strive for power, and they strive to get this position uh, because they genuinely love people uh, to, to say, Hey, don't, don't, don't worry about trying to follow God and all of his rules. Just do what the Church says. Just kind of blend in with everyone else, go through the motions, then you're good, then you'll be happy. But there's more. It's not just Catholicism. It's also the Masonry or any other religious organization that sets up a hierarchy of power. Organized religion strives to use miracles to justify their authority and mystery to justify conscience and rationalism and then authority in order to compel obedience. And all of it in order to get people in a place that they feel comfortable so they can just live out their lives and have their pretty little sins, their favorite little activities, and they don't have to rock the boat, just don't break these rules, and submit and give to the church or give to the state and don't express that opinion or don't own that gun or whatever the authority that the tyrant wants to give it's all about submission to the authority, and the authority is justified by miracles and your conscience. And that's why uh, Ivan also says that religions hate other religions, because they are competing for power and authority. That's also why uh, tyrannical governments hate other governments. It's because it's a, it's a, it brings doubt to the entire enterprise that they're trying to establish, which is this idea that, no, 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 you come to me for your life, for your satisfaction, for your survival. And Alyosha says, okay, all right, fine. How does your poem end? Or was that the end? And Ivan says, well, I was going to end it like this. So the Grand Inquisitor finally fell silent and waited for his prisoner to reply. And his prisoner did not reply. And he realized that Christ had been captively listening to him and calmly listening to him and intentionally listening to him, making eye contact the whole time and not apparently wishing to correct him at all. And so the old man was about to say something harsh and bitter and terrible in anger and fury. But just as he was about to open his mouth, that is exactly when Christ stood up in silence and gently kissed the old man on his bloodless 90-year-old lips.
and that was all. That's the only answer Christ gave. And the old man shuddered, and the corners of his mouth stirred. And he then turned to the cell door, opened it, and said, Go, and do not come again. Do not come at all, ever, never, never. And the prisoner left into the dark squares of the city, leaving the Grand Inquisitor in his own cell with the door wide open. And the kiss burns in his heart, but his mind has not been shaken. So there you go. There's the Grand Inquisitor. And I know I ran through it a little bit fast. <laughs> I expected that to take me a lot longer. But I really wanted to get to the discussion. And the reason for that is because I think there's so much in this little story. There's so much to unpack. And there's no way that I, that I picked up on everything. I mean, I read it three or four times to try to prepare for this. It's only 12 pages, but it is dense. And there are all kinds of subtleties and allusions and references. And it's very hard to even unwrap the most basic uh, premise effectively. Uh, it's also a little bit vague. You know, I'm not totally sure um, what Dostoevsky means by the word freedom at various times. And it seems like he might use it in different ways in, at different times. And, uh, and then not only that, but, but the, the, the poem, the, the story, it interacts with you on several levels. You're reading the chapter and it just feels like a tornado of passion and emotion, as well as ideas and ideologies that you can't even fully interact with because he's talking about all of them at the same time. And you're not even really sure how you understand it, but you know, you kind of are. And, uh, it's, it's because the chapter, it interacts with you in several layers of analysis while you read. And because of the illusions and things, you're prompted to think about things and contemplate two different ideas at the same time, which you're not even realizing that you're doing until then that, is explicitly addressed and then the two ideas are being talked about and you're like oh yeah i was thinking about that while i was reading and it's like yeah because you are picking up on more than you're even consciously aware of and so it's a brilliant chapter it's an incredible chapter and i'm sure that there are entire veins of discussion that i've completely missed or will miss and that there are entire points that perhaps i misunderstood but part of the beauty of the chapter is that it's a little bit vague and um, a lot of the complaints that the Grand Inquisitor makes about free will and about authority and, and uh, about the, the, the nature or the, the human condition, rather, are not completely concrete. And so there's a little bit that it kind of forces you to read into. And, and there's a lot of parallels and things that, that draws you to other, uh, definitely scripture passages, as well as other uh, works of, of, of literature and, and, uh, and, and that kind of a thing. And so... Um, Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's hard because, again, like, for example, the biggest challenge for me was uh, the, the question of freedom. What does the Grand Inquisitor mean by freedom? Because as an American, when I read about freedom, uh, I, I always think political freedom. That's immediately where I go. I think, uh, you know, the Second Amendment. You know, I think the, the rights the Constitution guarantees to me. I'm thinking, uh, you know, the right to, to self-government, uh, the right to own my own property. Uh, the right to ho own my own gun, right to say what I want to say, the right uh, for lawful search and seizure, that, that kind of a thing. And, and I'm not entirely sure that Dostoevsky is talking about that primarily, although he definitely is. And so, I don't know, it's, it's, it's challenging. So there's a lot that can be said about the Grand Inquisitor. Uh, one of them is, for example, the nature of free will. Is free will essentially a gift 
or a curse. Because many ancients and uh, thinkers would say that free will is one of the things that differentiates us uh, from animals. It's up there with the capacity to reason. Free will is what makes us moral agents. It's part of the Imago Dei. It's part of what it means to be created in God's image. Imago Dei is Latin for God's image. And so the capacity to forge our own destiny is part of what it means to be human. But here, Dostoevsky, and really all existentialist thinkers uh, since Dostoevsky, have actually said that mm, free will is actually sort of a curse. The freedom to choose your own destiny is actually a burden because that means that you're responsible for your own destiny. And who can bear that responsibility? I mean, that's, that's where anxiety comes from. Who can bear to look at themselves and realize that it is up to them to pull themselves up by their existential bootstraps and carve the life that they want to live out of the world that they've been thrown into? And so some existentialists, like uh, uh, Sartre, would say that we've been condemned to be free and that we will consistently adopt what he called bad faith in order to elude this freedom. So, for example, we'll believe that, well, you know, I, I, I'm not smart enough to go to college, and so I guess, you know, here I am, a 45-year-old man married to this old, ugly woman, and I'm just going to be a plumber for my whole life. And that kind of bad faith, um, that, that belief is actually comforting to that person because even though, of course, it's not true at all, they could quit their job, they could get a divorce, they could change their life in radical ways, but they choose not to, and so they'll believe a narrative uh, just to get themselves out of the responsibility of having to be responsible for their life and for their actions. And so they begin to look at free will, and, and the existentialists since Dostoevsky have understood free will as actually a burden. Uh, we are condemned to be free. Oh, if only we could just have a lane that we were created to fulfill, uh, a purpose that we were given, an instruction manual that says, this is your purpose, do it. Uh, so anyway, that's the that's kind of the existentialist influence that came out of this poem and still exists among existentialists today, although most people today, of course, are postmodernists and things. But anyway, um, and I can sympathize with this kind of a conversation. However, um, the conversation between freedom and happiness is kind of an interesting thing because uh, necessarily we do have to limit some of our freedom in order to uh, be happy. So, for example, if I want to experience the joys of marriage, you can't do that unless you give up the freedom to pursue a relationship with anyone else besides your partner. Uh, also, if you wanted to uh, enjoy the freedom of playing Mozart or Beethoven, you wouldn't be able to enjoy that freedom unless you restricted your freedom of uh, leisure. And you'd have to diligently practice for hours and hours. And that's going to be a significant sacrifice. But if you rein yourself in and you control your, you, you restrict your freedom, then you would um, have the ability to perform uh, a piece free of mistakes. And so that's, that's kind of an example of how you give up your freedom in exchange for some happiness. But Dostoevsky seems to go farther. He says, well, that can go way too far. People are happier submitting to an authority figure like the church or the state in order to not have to think for themselves. The position seems to be that it's not just that, hey, if you give up your freedom, then eventually you'll be able to play Mozart. It's that, no, no, no. If you look at the universe, you are chilled to the bone with the freedom that you have within it. The position seems to be uh, that 
when you rebel against the uncertainty of free reason and the fear of hunger and the aimlessness of nihilism, you will adopt far too tyrannical of a worldview in order to make sense of your life and move forward. And everyone does this, religious or, in, or non-religious. Whether it's a dogmatic religious worldview, uh, you know, in, in, in Dostoevsky's view, Catholicism might fit the bill depending on your, uh, depending on what you do with your Catholicism. I'm not trying to pick on Catholics. I'm not saying every Catholic is like this, obviously. I'm just saying that, and it's not a Catholic thing. <laughs> but you can take your religious worldview and jam it on yourself so hard because that's what gives you your sense of security. And I'm not even saying that that's wrong necessarily. I'm just describing the reality that Dostoevsky is pointing out. And he says that secularists did this too. And that's what they do when they create the Tower of Babel. And they create this communistic religion where they have these doctrines that they adhere to and they believe no matter what. And they will die to defend them. And that's, that's how they make sense of the world. That's how they move forward. This dogmatic religious worldview that on some levels of analysis is identical to a secularistic uh, worldview that also is dogmatic and, and, and strives to make sense of the world through giving themselves rules. And so to give you, you know, maybe some examples, people will give up coffee uh, or sugar in order to become a Mormon. I think it's the Mormons who are really strict. It might be Jehovah's Witnesses, but anyway. Oh, I need to brush up on that. They, people will do all kinds of things in order to feel existentially secure in the arms of religion. And they will do the same thing in order to feel secure in the arms of government. They will give up their money. They will give up their personal freedoms. They will give up all sorts of things in order to feel secure in the arms of something that's a perceived higher power. But in both cases, I think Dostoevsky is pointing out that people will give up too much of their freedom for security. They won't think through their own religious convictions because they're willing to just pawn it off to the church. They, they won't exercise their own responsibility as human beings because they'd rather just say well if the if the state says not to say this or that i guess i just won't say this or that dostoevsky actually um was big on freedom of speech and uh, he ended up in in prison for it and also for interacting with some socialists just because he wanted to he wanted to read the other side and uh but their material was banned but anyway uh, so there's this profound discussion in the grand inquisitor around authority and what role does the state or the church or the individual play in restricting freedom in order to um, in order to achieve happiness and so obviously you could talk and people have written books on that uh, extensively and it's a very interesting conversation and it is so because it touches both religious and political veins I mean that's what freedom is it's, it's both a religious idea and a political idea you know should you give up your freedom to express your own ideas should you give up your freedom to uh, earn your own money? Should you give up your right and your freedom to live on your own land? To own your own land? To raise your children as you see fit instead of how the state sees fit? You know, is, is it appropriate to surrender all of these things in hopes of building the Tower of Babel, bringing heaven on earth and a utopian society, which is also a, a tyrannical society by definition? Is that appropriate? You know, and, and you could say the same thing about uh, Christianity or, or the church or any religion. Is it appropriate to give up your freedom uh, to have sex with whoever you want to? Should you give up your freedom 
to sleep in on a Sunday morning or keep your money that you would have maybe otherwise donated or uh, should you become a slave to virtue and, and good works? Should you beat your flesh into submission every day as the Apostle Paul says that he does? That's a lot of sacrifice. And people are willing to give up a lot in order to live peaceably under a tyrant. And so the question is, how much self-determination, how much economic freedom, how much spiritual freedom do you believe that you really want? Because people will give up all sorts of freedoms in pursuit of human happiness. I know there are a lot of people who will just say, look, I believe, you know, whatever the church believes, or I believe whatever, or I don't even really care what I believe. I just want to do what I want to do. And that's, I think, what Dostoevsky is touching right here. Because if you want to be a Christian, you clearly have to give up certain freedoms. Listen, if you want to be a Christian, you don't get to believe in Baal or Moloch or Allah. You don't get to just believe whatever you want. You actually have to believe what Jesus taught in order to be a Christian. And you have to believe what the Bible says. And if you want to actually be a Christian, you have to live like Christ lived. I mean, that's what it means to be a disciple. And there's a lot of sacrifice in that. And Jesus himself said, count the cost before becoming my disciple. Foolish is the man who begins construction on a tower without first counting his funds to see if he can complete it. Foolish is the king who declares war before scouting the enemy to see if he can actually defeat him. And so too, foolish is the man who declares himself my follower, but is not willing to pay the price to actually be a disciple. God's forgiveness is free, but it will cost you everything. And so this is actually what I want to talk about. There are a lot of really interesting things that you could talk about at the Grand Inquisitor, but there is one thing that I want to talk about. The other questions are profound and interesting, but the Grand Inquisitor leans hard into this idea that Christianity is a religion for the elite. The weak people who are cursed with freedom will always use their freedom to sin and to commit adultery and to lust and to be greedy. And it's worse than that. Jesus didn't just say that you can't murder or cheat or steal. He said that you can't even have hatred in your heart. You can't even be jealous of someone else, whether it's jealous of their sex life or jealous of their property or anything else. Well, geez, how are you supposed to do that? Jesus demands that you be so removed from your personal belongings that you are so fully dedicated to him that in comparison you hate everything else. Luke 14:15 says, "If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." End quote. Jesus demands that your allegiance to him be so unwavering that your love for him be so indomitable that you would be willing to leave behind everything in order to follow him. In Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, quote, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? End quote. So what's the underlying message here? Not that subtle. When Jesus says, take up his cross, he means carry the means of your very execution, your excruciating and humiliating death. Carry that on your back. Take responsibility for it. Own it. He who will do whatever it takes to follow the commands and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what government or laws or armies or vigilantes or anything else gets in your way, he who carries that cross to the end, he is the one who will save his soul. Jesus demands that you freely choose him and that every single day you choose to live not to fulfill your own desires for lust and greed and power and attention, but instead live every day for something greater, for something higher than yourself, for something infinitely more beautiful and captivating and glorious, which is God. And God displays himself so wonderfully with all of his complexity and simplicity, with all of his justice and righteous indignation, but also his unfathomable love and mercy that he does all the things he does in order to show himself to you. And the whole purpose is that you would see him for who he is and admire him and love him back. But you know what that means? That means sometimes you're going to be mocked. In some parts of the world, you'll be robbed. You'll be attacked. You'll be raped, killed, tortured. And through it all, God is right there with you to say, I'm here in this moment. And I'm giving you this trial in order to show you how far you can really go. Because I am standing with you and for you. So you see, the Grand Inquisitor makes this phenomenal statement, this incredible statement. He says that Jesus thought too highly of man. Most men cannot discipline themselves to be faithful disciples. Most people are incapable. And therefore the church that he has built is actually more loving to man because he understands that man is weak and pitiful. And so he gives his rules and he gives his things that he must believe and do. And he gets his little diddly and his little dance. And then he says, okay, now you're good. Go ahead, go home. But God gives mankind the responsibility to follow Christ. Because God commands it. But then he makes following Christ so hard. And that's not fair. That's not loving, says the Grand Inquisitor. But here's where the Inquisitor is wrong. God commands us to follow Christ, surely. And even though it is hard, nigh, it is impossible on your own, he knows that the flesh is weak and incapable. But God doesn't command us to follow Christ because he enjoys the sight of man on his knees. 
God commands us to follow Christ because he knows that the only way you will ever accomplish it is if you are depending on God the entire time. And as you depend on God, you will see and marvel at him. And you'll be satisfied and you'll be fulfilled and you'll be happy and you'll be secure and comforted and overjoyed because you see God. God asks you to follow Christ because as you do, you'll become close to him. You will learn from God himself. God himself will be your mentor, your instructor, your sage. And you know what? God is a pretty good teacher. And that is a pretty beautiful relationship. It is worth anything this life could throw at you. There's this beautiful passage at the end of Matthew 11, and I want to read it to you. Matthew 11, 25 and onward. Quote, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says this, quote, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. End quote. You see, following Christ isn't just hard. It's impossible. That's the point. And as you struggle to obey the commands of Scripture and wrestle with the identity and promises of God, you will learn as you go. And what you will learn is that before you were labored and heavy laden, but Jesus will give you rest. And you can take his yoke upon you and you can learn from him because he is gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And in case, in case you missed that imagery, uh, a yoke is one of those things that you tie an ox to. And so the image is two animals that are pulling a cart or a plow. And uh, the connection between the cart and the animal is the yoke. So it's the thing that they put on their, their backs and things. And so Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You can be side by side. We'll pull this thing together. The God of the universe is gentle and lowly in heart. And he will teach you to pull the load that he has set for you. The load of suffering that life brings. The pain, the sacrifice, all of those things. Christ is right there beside you. He will teach you. And the reason that you have the load in the first place is so that you can learn from Christ and get to know him. So the Inquisitor says that Jesus amplifies man's freedom. And this is wrong because man is weak and pathetic. But Jesus says, no. 
Man is not weak and pathetic. I created each and every human soul to be fully capable of seeing me and learning from me and glorifying me as a reflection of who I am. Man is only weak and pathetic if he stands on his own. Then he's dust and bones without me. But with me, with God, you can do anything. You can do anything. You can survive anything. You can endure anything. You can forgive anything. You can be kind and loving and gracious to anybody. But God, you're asking me to forgive no matter what. You're asking me to love my enemies. You're asking me to not lust. How is that even possible? You're asking me to not be greedy. You're asking me to, to trust you instead of fretting and worrying so hard about the future. You're asking me to do all kinds of things that I feel like I can't do. What do I do if someone murders my child? How am I going to forgive that person? And God looks at you in the eyes and he says, yeah, I know. I know what I'm asking. I know what it's like to forgive someone for murdering your child. I know what it's like to stand up to temptation. I know what it's like to forgive those who abandon you and gossip behind your back and betray you and slander you. I know what it's like to be betrayed by your best friends. I know what it's like to have everyone you know and love abandon you and betray you. I know what it's like to have your family not believe in you, to scold you. Believe me, I know. And I'm here to help you every step of the way through life's journey. And the journey is God's tool to reveal who he is to you. So that at the end, you can hear God say, that's my girl. That's my boy. I taught him well. Did you see that? Did you see that, Satan? Did you see that, earth? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's my boy. That's my child. I taught him well. Enter into the joy of your master. God has designed the entire universe in order to set up trials and tribulations for his people so that we can go through them and marvel at the strength that God supplies us and understand the beauty and the power of God at our very fingertips. And the world can see this. Every now and then, you know, you'll get a story in the news about someone who was murdered and the person's family comes out and, and says, we forgive you with the strength of God. Because it is only divine power that could ever suppress my feelings of anger and hatred and loss and a desire for vengeance. But you know what? Because of what Christ has done for me, I can look you in the eyes and say that I forgive you. And that's why we suffer. That's why we are tempted. Because it's an opportunity to learn from God. It's an opportunity to see who God is. The reason that suffering and temptation is a part of life is because without them, you would be blind to the goodness of God. It's all coming back to the slogan that I, um, that I had in the episode on suicide, depression, and the secret to happiness. 
Life is worth living because God is worth discovering. And I, I'm, I'm wrapping up here. I know we're running a little bit long, but uh, I have a few verses for you because I think that scripture says what I'm explaining to you super beautifully and way more profoundly than I have just taken all of this time to do. And, uh, and so this is the main point of the Grand Inquisitor that I wanted to focus in on, where the Grand Inquisitor says man is weak. He's, in, he's incapable of living up to the standards that Christ set out for him. And, uh, and my response to that, and I think the Christian response to that, is to say, no, man lives exactly to this capacity that God supplies strength for him. And so First uh, James 2 um, complements this really well. It says, or, uh, for, first, or James, not First James, there's no First James. There's only, one, there's only one letter written by James. So James wrote a letter, and uh, it's chapter 1, verse 2. And he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's the idea there? The idea there is that if your faith is tested, if your dependence on God is challenged, that's good. Count it all joy. Because when you are leaning on God, you will learn that you can be complete and whole and lack nothing. Oh, but I'm starving. Oh, but but all these things are going wrong. I'm homeless. I'm you, fill in the blank. You lack nothing because you have God. 1 Peter 1, 3, quote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Here's the, here's the key part. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Last one, Philippians 1, towards the end. Paul, writing to the Philippians, and he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the face of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. And here's the key sentence. This sentence is incredible. Listen to this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So notice what Paul is saying there. He's saying, it has been granted to you. You have received the precious gift of suffering for Christ. Why is that a precious gift? 
Because in the suffering, you will know Christ more. You will become closer to your mentor, to your instructor, to your God. You'll know him better. You'll become intimately acquainted with him. Because that's your only way you're going to make it through. And that is a gift. And I'd like to end with a famous quote from G.K. Chesterton. He said that the problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. Christianity is challenging because Christ will ask you to give up your lust, your greed, your insatiable craving for attention. He'll ask you to give up your hatred and your bitterness and your resentment and your envy and your immaturity and your pettiness. He'll ask you to give all that up and he'll ask you to learn from him for he is gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And if you're an astute listener, you might be spotting a contradiction. You might be saying, all right, Mark, is Christianity easy or is it hard? All right, because in one sentence you say, you know, his yoke is easy and his burden is light, blah, blah, blah. But then in another sentence you say, oh, but it's so hard to forgive people and yada, yada. So which is it? Well, in some sense it's easy and in some sense it's hard. It's hard to give up your sin. It's hard to not give in to the temptations in the desert, as the Grand Inquisitor is saying, the, the spirit of the intellect, the spirit of non-being, the spirit of nihilism, the spirit of in, in, insatiable doubt. Because you know, you know, okay, great, maybe, maybe Christianity worked for you, but how do I know it's going to work for me? How do I know that if I read the Bible, I'll get something out of it? How do I know that if I depend on Christ, that it'll actually work? How will I know? Well, you don't. You won't know. You have to try it. You have to take a Kierkegaardian leap of faith. Kierkegaard was a philosopher. If you don't know who he is, don't worry about it. And so that, that living out your faith, that's a risk. And not only is it a risk, but it's very challenging. But once you're living it out, once you're there, once you're learning from Christ, he says, don't worry, I've got it covered. I have forgiven your sin. All you got to do is just keep, just keep swimming. Just keep following me. Just keep learning from me. So it's hard. It's hard to stomach giving up sin. It's hard to stomach... Um, it's hard to give up a desire for self-destruction. Um, it's hard to understand the suffering of life and to make sense of it all the time. Uh, but, and becoming a Christian makes that suffering double or triple at least, especially in certain parts of the world. <laughs> it makes it harder. People want to kill you for it. But once you see the beauty and the majesty of God and you see how sweet God's forgiveness is and how awesome God is as an ally, then you realize if God is for you, who can possibly be against you? What are they going to do? What could life possibly do to me? What could my enemies possibly do to me? Kill you? Kill your family? Is that the best they got? It's only a lifetime. I only have to live one lifetime before an eternity with God the inventor of butterflies and music and love, the God who has forgiven me, who loves me, the God who is so 
majestic and beautiful and admirable as he is. And you can see that because of what Christ did and because of the journey that he has designed each one of us to walk through. Thank you for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast. Please tune in for the next few weeks as we talk about the problem of evil and uh, we respond to some of the objections that Ivan Karamazov brings up against Alyosha. But the important thing to remember is that even if you don't have all the the arguments and the intellectualism dialed in, Alyosha could not respond to Ivan's arguments. But through the story, he lives out faith in Christ, and it is so profoundly beautiful that that the arguments fall flat. The chatter of Ivan Karamazov, as brilliant and interesting as it is, just falls flat when they both start to live out their worldviews. Thank you for listening to the World of Christian Podcast. Hopefully you'll join me next time. Well, thank you very much for choosing to listen to the Weller Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Stanley, and we have a very good episode today. As soon as I get done with this sound check, 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 check. They never expect the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> okay, don't get off track. This is serious. This is serious, Mark. Okay, so imagine the... Um... <laughs> I've been completely derailed. <laughs> oh, dear. Thank you for listening to the Bowler Christian Podcast. You are also listening to the voice of Mark Stanley, your host. I am the Bowler Christian Podcast. I am the Senate. <laughs> um, that was a goofy opening. Let's try that again. You're listening to the Bowler Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for doing so. Please support the podcast by leaving a review on iTunes or Facebook. Or whatever thing that you are using or accessing the internet with. Leave a review.